come, Creator Spirit, visit the minds of those who are yours and fill with heavenly grace the hearts of those you have made. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So that is a challenging gospel lesson before us today in Luke chapter 14. Jesus' statements, frankly, are often challenging, but his language in verse 26 here today is particularly difficult. What does Jesus mean when he says, you have to hate your family? Well, a good rule of thumb when you're trying to understand a difficult passage of the Scripture is to compare it to other passages and let one passage of Scripture shed light on another to interpret Jesus' words with Jesus' words. Now, just a couple chapters before our reading for today, in Luke chapter 10, you have a very familiar story. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. That story was prompted by a conversation that Jesus was having with an expert in the Mosaic Law regarding the question of which commandment in the law, all these commandments, hundreds of commands of what you're supposed to do, of all of them, which one is the greatest? That's what prompted the story of the Good Samaritan. And of course, in that story, Jesus says, well, there are two great commands, right? Is it too early for a quiz, a pop quiz on a Sunday morning? The first great command is what? Do you know? Love God, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus goes one better and says, let me give you a second. The second is like it, and it is the command to do what? Love your neighbor. Very good. See, you all passed. Everyone passed with flying colors. Love God, love neighbor. According to Jesus, these are the two great commands. However, they are not equal. According to Jesus, he asserts that loving God is the first and great command. It is the highest priority. It is the supreme obligation that we are under. The second, he says, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. By saying that loving your neighbor is second, Jesus is telling us at least two things about love. On the one hand, he's telling it's an admission that you cannot love everything equally. And on the other, Jesus is affirming that to fulfill your obligations, to fulfill God's law, your loves must be rightly aligned. Love God, then love neighbor. That's what Jesus means when he says that loving God is the greatest command. You were made to love, but you cannot love everything equally. So your loves have to be ordered rightly. That casts light back on our passage for today in Luke chapter 14. What does Jesus mean when he says we are to hate our father, mother, wife, children, and so forth? To begin with, we can certainly say that he is provoking us to examine how our loves are ordered. Do we really love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is our primary commitment to the neighbors who happen to live in the same apartment we live in, that we sometimes call family, like the closest neighbors. They're not even outside a door. This might seem a little bit abstract, so let me illustrate what I mean. 
Consider, if you will, a married couple, one of whom is a workaholic. They regularly work late. They make appointments for times that they've already committed to their spouse. They forget about date nights that are on the calendar. They miss important anniversaries. Now, what is the non-workaholic spouse going to say? Probably a lot, right? They do all that, keep doing that. Well, one thing that they could say is, you love your job more than you love me, right? You love your work more than you love me. It's an accusation that their loves are out of order. And that's what Jesus is saying. If your love for God never causes a family member to feel like they're second most important in your life, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. And that brings up another startling thing about this passage. Because he does not say, you cannot be a follower of God. He says, if you do not love me over every other commitment in your life, you cannot be a follower of me. Jesus here is not talking like a religious teacher or even a rabbi. He's speaking like a king. He's claiming for himself the very position of God. Your love for me has to transcend your love for your family. And as difficult as that is, that's not all. Did you notice how many times in that short reading I did, that phrase, cannot be my disciple, appears? It's what, seven, eight verses? And three times he says it over... If this, you can't be my disciple. If that, you can't. If the other, there's three things. The first one is, you've got to love me more than your family. He's listing, as it were, three conditions. The first is, love me more than your family. The second is in the next verse, he says that you have to carry your cross and follow me. We think of crosses in an artistic way. And well, we should because of the meaning of the cross of Jesus. Recall at the time of Jesus' saying this, he had not died. Can you imagine for Lent or for Eastertide wearing a pin or a brooch of an electric chair? I mean, that would be scandalous, right? Or having a t-shirt of a firing squad? That's the image you need to hear when Jesus says, you've got to pick up your cross. In their minds, this is not beautiful medieval artwork. This is an instrument of torture and execution. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to carry your cross, which means to follow Jesus is to die to your every other ambition. To subordinate every other desire for your life to his will, truly for him to be your Lord. And if you're still feeling pretty good about this, <laughs> then you get to the third one. In the last verse that I read, where he said you have to give up everything you own, all your possessions. You see, Jesus is saying, 
that our loves can get out of order. It is possible for us to love our family first and relegate him to secondary status. It's possible for us to love our own ambitions first and leave him on the side. It's possible for us to love our possessions first and give him a little bit extra if there's something left over. But Jesus says, no, I'm king. And if you're going to follow me, I must be your first love. Now, some of you may be thinking, who does this Jesus think he is? And frankly, even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we come back to that question a lot. So you're in a good place. Sometimes, even multiple times over the course of the lives of people who claim to be and are believers in Jesus, we return to this question with doubt, like, wait, what is Jesus asking of me? Who is he? And friends, that's precisely what Jesus encourages us to do. Because sandwiched in between these three conditions, if you want to be my follower, you've got to love me more than family. You've got to love me more than your ambitions. You've got to love me more than your possessions. Sandwiched in between, there are two, did you catch them? Little illustrations, little stories, parables to be specific. Little stories and in those stories, Jesus, is, Jesus encourages people who are thinking about following him to sit down and think. What were the stories? It was a story first of a builder who's going to build something, and before they put a shovel in the dirt, doesn't first sit down and figure out, do I have enough money? Do I have enough materials? Do I have enough manpower. Can I get this actually done? Otherwise, I'm going to get halfway done, and I'm going to run out of resources, and it's all over for me, and everyone's going to make fun of me for my half-finished building. All right, that's one story. The other story is, or what about a king who's, got, who, who's about to be attacked? That king has to sit down and think, right? Can I go to war against that king? And if not, what do I need to do? You see, friends, in both of those stories, the story of the builder and the story of the king, you find people with two critical concerns. What will it cost and do I have enough? To use accounting languages, language, expenses and resources. What's it going to cost to do this thing and do I have enough to make it? And this is what I mean when I say that Jesus is encouraging you. I mean, he's speaking so starkly in this moment. You've got to love me more than family, ambition, possession. He is speaking so starkly in this moment. He's not looking for quick decisions. Like, come on, join my team. Come on, come on. This is not like rapid sales calls. He's saying, sit down and think about this. Because what I'm calling you to will cost you everything. And so here's the question you have to sit down and think about. Do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? Do you have what it takes to love him more than your closest family member? To prioritize him over your own ambitions? 
to give up all your possessions for him. Friends, I know it's Sunday morning and we might like to say yes, but please do not hear this question as if I'm a football coach, okay? In the locker room before the game, trying to rev you up. Come on, you've got what it takes. Go out there and do it. That's not what we're doing here. Because the reality is, we don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. Jesus here is making an impossible demand. Impossible. Not improbable. Impossible. So the answer to the question I pose in the title of the sermon, do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? Friends, the answer to that question is no. You don't, I don't, none of us do. It's impossible. And see, friends, Jesus knew this. I mean, goodness, he's looking at his disciples in this moment. One of them is going to betray him. Another one's going to deny him. And all of them are going to run away. Did they have what it took to follow Jesus? See, Jesus knows us. And that's why he actually, and I love this, he actually wrote people like us right into his story. He knows that we don't have the resources to keep his law perfectly, so he actually put a character in one of the parables to represent us. Do you see it? Do you know who it is? He does not depict us as those who are equipped to keep his law, but he actually depicts us as the king in the second story. The one who's sitting there trying to figure out, my goodness, there's an attacking army. Do I have enough resources to go out and meet that army? No, I don't. That king is vastly under-equipped. It was an impossible battle. And friends, that means we need to do the same thing that the king in Jesus' story does. He does not unthinkingly press forward, try to make the impossible happen. No, he looks at his inadequate resources and he asks for terms of peace. And here are the terms of peace. This Jesus, this King, this Messiah has done for you what you could not do on your own. Where we have idolized our family and crushed them under the weight of our expectations, Jesus always loved God over his family, even when he was a 12-year-old boy. And being about his father's business led his parents on a frantic search through Jerusalem where we have made our ambitions the inviolable center of our lives, Jesus' very life was a reflection of his own prayer, not my will but thine. And where we increase our wealth in order to find security or comfort or pleasure or power, Jesus gave away everything he had up to and including his very life. You see, Jesus does give us here an impossible demand one we cannot fulfill. But the good news today is that what we cannot do, Jesus has already done. Where we fall short of what Jesus requires, this king has succeeded. And he succeeded for us. 
He lived the life that we have failed to live. And then he died the death that we should have died. That we might go free. That we might know grace. That we might experience forgiveness. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to prove that he really is the king he claimed to be. And to bring about the renewal of all things. Friends, these are the terms of peace Jesus offers you. And this is the invitation that he offers us at this table. To lay down our attempts to be the perfect disciple. To acknowledge that you, yes, you need a savior. To find wholeness and redemption and welcome and acceptance in him. He invites you to entrust yourself and all you cling to so dearly, your family, your ambitions, your possessions, to him, to his work, not yours, to his goodness, not yours, to his sacrifice, not yours. And a funny thing happens when you do. This risen king has sent his spirit on his people to make us new, to loosen our grip on the things that we cling to so tightly, and find life in him. It reminds me of the story. You heard the story of the little boy who got his hand stuck in his mother's antique vase. As little boys are wont to do, he was doing what he shouldn't have been doing, and he comes around the corner, and he's got a vase for a forearm, and his hand is stuck in it. And the mom and dad are like, oh my goodness, how are we, okay, so they try pulling on it, that doesn't work. Like, okay, let's, let's try, let's try butter, let's try Vaseline, let's try, they try everything they can think of. And of course, the longer this is going, the more frantic the, the little boy is getting. And finally the parents are like, you know what, doesn't matter, we're just going to have to. Break, break him free of this. And so they get a hammer up to the, this antique vase and they smash it. When the vase falls off the boy's arm, they notice his hand is in a fist. They're like, son, has your hand been in a fist this whole time? Mm-hmm. Why? because I was holding a penny and I didn't want to drop it. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. To let go of the things we cling to so dearly. To find life in him. His invitation is well summed up in the closing words of C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity. Look for yourself, cling to your family, your ambitions, your possessions, and you will, in the long run, find only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But give up yourself. Entrust yourself, your family, your ambitions, your possessions to him. And look for Christ. And you will find him and everything else thrown in. Amen.